Book Five, Chapter Two of Last Days of Pompeii. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Last Days of Pompeii by Edward G. Bulwer Lytton. Book Five, Chapter Two, The Amphitheater. Nydia, assured by the account of Sosia on his return home and satisfied that her letter was in the hands of Salust, gave herself up once more to hope. Salust would surely lose no time in seeking the Praetor, in coming to the house of the Egyptian, in releasing her, in breaking the prison of Calanus. That very night Glaucus would be free. Alas, the night passed, the dawn broke. She heard nothing but the hurried footsteps of the slaves along the hall in Peristyle, and their voices in preparation for the show. By and by, the commanding voice of Arbaces broke on her ear. A flourish of music rung out cheerily. The long procession were sweeping to the amphitheatre to glut their eyes on the death-pangs of the Athenian. The procession of Arbaces moved along slowly, and with much solemnity till now, arriving at the palace where it was necessary for such as came in litters or chariots to alight, Arbaces descended from his vehicle, and proceeded to the entrance by which the more distinguished spectators were admitted. His slaves, mingling with the humbler crowd, were stationed by officers who received their tickets, not much unlike our modern opera ones, in places in the popularia, the seats apportioned to the vulgar. And now, from the spot where Arbaces sat, his eyes scanned the mighty and impatient crowd that filled the stupendous theatre. On the upper tier, but apart from the male spectators, sat women, their gay dresses resembling some gaudy flower-bed. It is needless to add that they were the most talkative part of the assembly, and many were the looks directed up to them, especially from the benches appropriated to the young and unmarried men. On the lower seats round the arena sat the more high-born and wealthy visitors, the magistrates and those of senatorial or equestrian dignity, the passages which, by corridors at the right and left, gave access to these seats at either end of the oval arena, were also the entrances for the combatants. Strong palings at these passages prevented any unwelcome eccentricity in the movements of the beasts, and confined them to their appointed prey. Around the parapet which was raised above the arena, and from which the seats gradually rose, were gladiatorial inscriptions and paintings wrought in fresco, typical of the entertainments for which the place was designed. Throughout the whole building wound invisible pipes, from which, as the day advanced, cooling and fragrant showers were to be sprinkled over the spectators. The officers of the amphitheatre were still employed in the task of fixing the vast awning, or velaria, which covered the whole, and which luxurious invention the companions arrogated to themselves. It was woven of the whitest Apulian wool, and variegated with broad stripes of crimson. Owing either to some inexperience on the part of the workmen, or to some defect in the machinery, the awning, however, was not arranged that day so happily as usual. Indeed, from the immense space of the circumference, the task was always one of great difficulty and art, so much so that it could seldom be adventured in rough or windy weather. But the present day was so remarkably still 
that there seemed to the spectators no excuse for the awkwardness of the artificers and when a large gap in the back of the awning was still visible from the obstinate refusal of one part of the valeria to ally itself with the rest the murmurs of discontent were loud and general the idile panza at whose expense the exhibition was given looked particularly annoyed at the defect and vowed bitter vengeance on the head of the chief officer of the show who fretting puffing perspiring busied himself in idle orders and unavailing threats the hubbub ceased suddenly the operators desisted the crowd were stilled the gap was forgotten for now with a loud and warlike flourish of trumpets the gladiators marshalled in ceremonious procession entered the arena they swept round the oval space very slowly and deliberately in order to give the spectators full leisure to admire their stern serenity of feature their brawny limbs and various arms as well as to form such wagers as the excitement of the moment might suggest oh cried the widow fulvia to the wife of panza as they leaned down from their lofty bench do you see that gigantic gladiator how drolly he is dressed yes said the idile's wife with complacent importance for she knew all the names and qualities of each combatant he is a retarius or netter he is armed only you see with a three-pronged spear like a trident and a net he wears no armor only the fillet and the tunic he is a mighty man and is to fight with sporus yon thick-set gladiator with the round shield and drawn sword but without body armor he has not his helmet on now in order that you may see his face how fearless it is by and by he will fight with his visor down but surely a net and spear are poor arms against a shield and sword that shows how innocent you are my dear fulvia the retarius has generally the best of it but who is yon handsome gladiator nearly naked is it not quite improper by venus but his limbs are beautifully shaped it is leyden a young untried man he has the rashness to fight yon other gladiator similarly dressed or rather undressed tetraides they fight first in the greek fashion with the cestus afterwards they put on armor and try sword and shield he is a proper man this leyden and the women i am sure are on his side so are not the experienced betters clodius offers three to one against him oh jove how beautiful exclaimed the widow as two gladiators armed cap a pied rode round the arena on light and prancing steeds resembling much the combatants in the tilts of the middle age they bore lances and round shields beautifully inlaid their armor was woven intricately with bands of iron but it covered only the thighs and the right arms short cloaks extending to the seat gave a picturesque and graceful air to their costume their legs were naked with the exception of sandals which were fastened a little above the ankle oh beautiful who are these asked the widow the one is named burbix he has conquered twelve times the other assumes the arrogant name of nobilior they are both gauls while thus conversing the first formalities of the show were over to these succeeded a feigned combat with wooden swords between the various gladiators matched against each other amongst these 
the skill of two Roman gladiators, hired for the occasion, was the most admired, and next to them the most graceful combatant was Leiden. This sham contest did not last above an hour, nor did it attract any very lively interest, except among those connoisseurs of the arena to whom art was preferable to more coarse excitement. The body of the spectators were rejoiced when it was over, and when the sympathy rose to terror. The combatants were now arranged in pairs, as agreed beforehand, their weapons examined, and the grave sports of the day commenced amidst the deepest silence, broken only by an exciting and preliminary blast of warlike music. It was often customary to begin the sports by the most cruel of all, and some bestiarius, or gladiator appointed to the beasts, was slain first, as an initiatory sacrifice. But in the present instance, the experienced Panza thought it better that the sanguinary drama should advance, not decrease, in interest, and accordingly the execution of Olynthus and Glaucus was reserved for the last. It was arranged that the two horsemen should first occupy the arena, that the foot gladiators, paired off, should then be loosed indiscriminately on the stage, that Glaucus and the lion should next perform their part in the bloody spectacle, and the tiger and the Nazarene be the grand finale. And in the spectacles of Pompeii, the reader of Roman history must limit his imagination, nor expect to find those vast and wholesale exhibitions of magnificent slaughter with which a Nero or a Caligula regaled the inhabitants of the imperial city. The Roman shows, which absorbed the more celebrated gladiators, and the chief portion of foreign beasts, were indeed the very reason why, in the lesser towns of the empire, the sports of the amphitheatre were comparatively humane and rare, and in this, as in other respects, Pompeii was but the miniature, the microcosm of Rome. Still, it was an awful and imposing spectacle, with which modern times have, happily, nothing to compare. A vast theatre, rising row upon row, and swarming with human beings, from fifteen to eighteen thousand in number, intent upon no fictitious representation, no tragedy of the stage, but an actual victory or defeat, the exultant life or the bloody death of each and all who entered the arena. The two horsemen were now at either extremity of the lists, if so they might be called, and, at a given signal from Panza, the combatants started simultaneously as in full collision, each advancing his round buckler, each poising on high his light yet sturdy javelin. But just when within three paces of his opponent, the steed of Burbix suddenly halted, wheeled round, and, as Nobilior was borne rapidly by, his antagonist spurred upon him. The buckler of Nobilior, quickly and skillfully extended, received a blow which otherwise would have been fatal. "'Well done, Nobilior!' cried the praetor, giving the first vent to the popular excitement. "'Bravely struck, my Burbix!' answered Clodius from his seat. And the wild murmur, swelled by many a shout, echoed from side to side. The visors of both the horsemen were completely closed, like those of the knights in after-times, but the head was, nevertheless, the great point of assault, and Nobilior, now wheeling his charger with no less adroitness than his opponent, directed his spear full on the helmet of his foe. Burbix raised his buckler to shield himself, and his quick-eyed antagonist, suddenly lowering his weapon, pierced him through the breast, 
Burbix reeled and fell. Nobilior! Nobilior! shouted the populace. I have lost ten sesterdia, said Clodius between his teeth. Habit! He has it, said Panza deliberately. The populace, not yet hardened into cruelty, made the signal of mercy. But as the attendants of the arena approached, they found the kindness came too late. The heart of the Gaul had been pierced, and his eyes were set in death. It was his life's blood that flowed so darkly over the sand and sawdust of the arena. "'It is a pity it was so soon over. There was little enough for one's trouble,' said the widow Falvia. "'Yes, I have no compassion for Burbix. Any one might have seen that Nobilior did but faint. Mark, they fix the fatal hook to the body. They drag him away to the spoliarium. They scatter new sand over the stage.' Panza regrets nothing more than that he is not rich enough to strew the arena with borax and cinnabar, as Nero used to do. Well, if it had been a brief battle, it is quickly succeeded. See my handsome Leiden in the arena, I and the net-bearer too, and the swordsmen. Oh, charming! There were now on the arena six combatants, Niger and his net, matched against Sporus with his shield and his short broadsword. Lydon and Tetraides, naked save by a cincture round the waist, each armed only with a heavy Greek cestus, and two gladiators from Rome, clad in complete steel, and evenly matched with immense bucklers and pointed swords. The initiatory contest between Lydon and Tetraides being less deadly than that between the other combatants, no sooner had they advanced to the middle of the arena, then, as by common assent, the rest held back, to see how that contest should be decided, and wait till fiercer weapons might replace the cestus, ere they themselves commenced hostilities. They stood leaning on their arms, and apart from each other, gazing on the show, which, if not bloody enough thoroughly to please the populace, they were still inclined to admire, because its origin was of their ancestral Greece. No person could, at first glance, have seemed less evenly matched than the two antagonists. Tetraides, though not taller than Leiden, weighed considerably more. The natural size of his muscles was increased, to the eyes of the vulgar, by masses of solid flesh. For, as it was a notion that the contest of the Cestus fared easiest with him who was plumpest, Tetraides had encouraged to the utmost his hereditary predisposition to the portly. His shoulders were vast, and his lower limbs thick-set, double-jointed, and slightly curved outward, in that formation which takes so much from beauty to give so largely to strength. But Leiden, except that he was slender even almost to meagerness, was beautifully and delicately proportioned, and the skillful might have perceived that, with much less compass of muscle than his foe, that which he had was more seasoned, iron and compact. In proportion, too, as he wanted flesh, he was likely to possess activity, and a haughty smile on his resolute face, which strongly contrasted the solid heaviness of his enemies, gave assurance to those who beheld it, and united their hope to their pity, so that, despite the disparity of their seeming strength, the cry of the multitude was nearly as loud for Leiden as for Tetraides. Whoever is acquainted with modern prize-ring, whoever has witnessed the heavy and disabling strokes which the human fist, skillfully directed, 
hath the power to bestow, may easily understand how much that happy facility would be increased by a band carried by thongs of leather round the arm as high as the elbow, and terribly strengthened about the knuckles by a plate of iron, and sometimes a plummet of lead. Yet this, which was meant to increase, perhaps rather diminished the interest of the fray, for it necessarily shortened its duration. A very few blows, successfully and scientifically planted, might suffice to bring the contest to a close, and the battle did not, therefore, often allow full scope for the energy, fortitude, and dogged perseverance that we technically style pluck, which not unusually wins the day against superior science, and which heightens to so painful a delight the interest in the battle and the sympathy for the brave. Guard thyself, growled Tetraides, moving nearer and nearer to his foe, who rather shifted round him than receded. Leiden did not answer, save by a scornful glance of his quick, vigilant eye. Tetraides struck. It was the blow of a smith on a vice. Leiden sank suddenly on one knee. The blow passed over his head. Not so harmless was Leiden's retaliation. He quickly sprung to his feet, and aimed his cestus full on the broad chest of his antagonist. Tetraides reeled. The populace shouted. "'You are unlucky today,' said Lepidus to Clodius. "'You have lost one bet, you will lose another.' "'By the gods, my bronzes go to the auctioneer if that is the case. I have no less than a hundred sesteria upon Tetraides. Ha, ha, see how he rallies. That was a home stroke. He has cut open Leiden's shoulder. A Tetraides, a Tetraides!' but Leiden is not disheartened. By Pollux, how well he keeps his temper. See how dexterously he avoids those hammer-like hands, dodging now here, now there, circling round and round. Ah, poor Leiden, he has it again. Three to one still on Tetraides. What say you, Lepidus? Well, nine sesteria to three, be it so. What, again, Leiden? He stops, he gasps for breath, by the gods he is down. No, he is again on his legs. Brave Leiden, Tetraides is encouraged. He laughs loud. He rushes on him. Fool, success blinds him. He should be cautious. Leiden's eye is like the lynx's, said Clodius between his teeth. Ha, Clodius, you saw that? Your man totters. Another blow. He falls, he falls. Earth revives him then, he is once more up, but the blood rolls down his face. By the thunderer, Leiden wins it, see how he presses on him, that blow on the temple would have crushed an ox, it has crushed Tetraides, he falls again, he cannot move, habit, habit. Habit, repeated Panza, take them out and give them the armor and swords. Noble editor, said the officers, we fear that Tetraides will not recover in time. Howbeit, we will try. Do so. In a few minutes the officers, who had dragged off the stunned and insensible gladiator, returned with rueful countenances. They feared for his life. He was utterly incapacitated from re-entering the arena. In that case, said Panza, hold light in a subditious, and the first gladiator that is vanquished let Leiden supply his place with the victor. 
The people shouted their applause at this sentence. Then they again sunk into deep silence. The trumpet sounded loudly. The four combatants stood each against each in prepared and stern array. Dost thou recognize the Romans, my Clodius? Are they among the celebrated, or are they merely ordinary? Eumolpus is a good second-rate swordsman, my Lepidus. Nepimus, the lesser man, I have never seen before, but he is the son of one of the imperial fiscales, and brought up in a proper school. Doubtless they will show sport, but I have no heart for the game. I cannot win back my money. I am undone. Curses on that Leiden! Who could have supposed he was so dexterous or so lucky? Well, Clodius, shall I take compassion on you and accept your own terms with these Romans? And even Tensesturdia on Eumolpus, then? What, when Nepimus is untried? Nay, nay, that is too bad. Well, ten to eight? Agreed. While the contest in the amphitheatre had thus commenced, there was one in the loftier benches for whom it had assumed, indeed, a poignant and stifling interest. The aged father of Leiden, despite his Christian horror of the spectacle, in his agonized anxiety for his son, had not been able to resist being the spectator of his fate. One amidst a fierce crowd of strangers, the lowest rabble of the populace, the old man saw, felt nothing, but the form, the presence of his brave son. Not a sound had escaped his lips when twice he had seen him fall to the earth. Only he turned paler and his limbs trembled. But he had uttered one low cry when he saw him victorious. Unconscious, alas, of the more fearful battle to which the victory was but a prelude. My gallant boy, said he and wiped his eyes. Is he thy son? said a brawny fellow to the right of the Nazarene. He has fought well. Let us see how he does by and by. Hark, he is to fight the first victor. Now, old boy, pray the gods that that victor be neither of the Romans, nor next to them the giant Niger. The old man sat down again and covered his face. The fray for the moment was indifferent to him. Leiden was not one of the combatants. Yet, yet, the thought flashed across him, the fray was indeed of deadly interest. The first who fell was to make way for Leiden. He started and bent down, with straining eyes and clasped hands, to view the encounter. The first interest was attracted towards the combat of Niger with Sporus, for this species of contest, from the fatal result which usually attended it, and from the great science it required in either antagonist, was always peculiarly inviting to the spectators. They stood at a considerable distance from each other. The singular helmet which Sporus wore, the visor of which was down, concealed his face, but the features of Niger attracted a fearful and universal interest from their compressed and vigilant ferocity. Thus they stood for some moments, each eyeing each, till Sporus began slowly and with great caution to advance, holding his sword pointed like a modern fencer's at the breast of his foe. Niger retreated as his antagonist advanced, gathering up his net with his right hand, and never taking his small glittering eye from the movements of the swordsman. Suddenly, when Sporius had approached nearly at arm's length, the Retiarius threw himself forward and cast his net. A quick inflection of body saved the gladiator from the deadly snare. He uttered a sharp cry of joy and rage 
and rushed upon Niger. But Niger had already drawn in his net, thrown it across his shoulders, and now fled round the lists with a swiftness which the secutor in vain endeavoured to equal. The people laughed and shouted aloud to see the ineffectual efforts of the broad-shouldered gladiator to overtake the flying giant. When, at that moment, their attention was turned from these to the two Roman combatants. They had placed themselves at the onset face to face, at the distance of modern fencers from each other. But the extreme caution which both evinced at first had prevented any warmth of engagement, and allowed the spectators full leisure to interest themselves in the battle between Sporus and his foe. But the Romans were now heated into full and fierce encounter. They pushed, returned, advanced on, retreated from each other with all that careful yet scarcely perceptible caution which characterizes men well experienced and equally matched. But at this moment, Eumolpus, the elder gladiator, by that dexterous backstroke which was considered in the arena so difficult to avoid, had wounded Nepomus in the side. The people shouted. Lepidus turned pale. Ho! said Clodius. The game is nearly over. If Eumolpus fights now the quiet fight, the other will gradually bleed himself away. But, thank the gods, he has not fight the backward fight. See, he presses hard upon Nepomus. By Mars, but Nepomus had him there. The helmet rang again. Clodius, I shall win. Why do I ever bet but at the dice? groaned Clodius to himself. Or why cannot one cog a gladiator? Asporus, Asporus, shouted the populace, as Niger, having now suddenly paused, had again cast his net, and again unsuccessfully. He had not retreated this time with sufficient agility. The sword of Sporus had inflicted a severe wound upon his right leg, and, incapacitated to fly, he was pressed hard by the fierce swordsman. His great height and length of arm still continued, however, to give him no despicable advantages, and steadily keeping his trident at the front of his foe, he repelled him successfully for several minutes. Sporus now tried, by great rapidity of evolution, to get round his antagonist, who necessarily moved with pain and slowness. In so doing, he lost his caution. He advanced too near to the giant, raised his arm to strike, and received the three points of the fatal spear full in his breast. He sank on his knee. In a moment more, the deadly net was cast over him. He struggled against its meshes in vain. Again, again, again he writhed mutely beneath the fresh strokes of the trident. His blood flowed fast through the net and redly over the sand. He lowered his arms in acknowledgment of defeat. The conquering Retiarius withdrew his net, and leaning on his spear, looked to the audience for their judgment. Slowly, too, at the same moment, the vanquished gladiator rolled his dim and despairing eyes around the theatre. From row to row, from bench to bench, there glared upon him but merciless and unpitying eyes. Hushed was the roar, the murmur. The silence was dread, for it was no sympathy. Not a hand, no, not even a woman's hand, gave the signal of charity and life. Sporus had never been popular in the arena, and lately the interest of the combatant had been excited on behalf of the wounded Niger. The people were warmed into blood, 
the mimic fight, had ceased to charm. The interest had mounted up to the desire of sacrifice and the thirst of death. The gladiator felt that his doom was sealed. He uttered no prayer, no groan. The people gave the signal of death. In dogged but agonized submission, he bent his neck to receive the fatal stroke. And now, as the spear of the Retarius was not a weapon to inflict instant and certain death, there stalked into the arena a grim and fatal form, brandishing a short, sharp sword, and with features utterly concealed beneath his visor. With slow and measured steps, this dismal headsman approached the gladiator, still kneeling, laid the left hand on his humbled crest, drew the edge of the blade across his neck, turned round to the assembly, lest in the last moment remorse should come upon them. The dread signal continued the same. The blade glittered brightly in the air, fell, and the gladiator rolled upon the sand. His limbs quivered, were still. He was a corpse. His body was dragged at once from the arena through the gate of death, and thrown into the gloomy den termed technically the spoliarium. And ere it had well reached that destination, the strife between the remaining combatants was decided. The sword of Eumolpus had inflicted the death wound upon the less experienced combatant. A new victim was added to the receptacle of the slain. Throughout that mighty assembly there now ran a universal movement. The people breathed more freely and resettled themselves in their seats. A grateful shower was cast over every row from the concealed conduits. In cool and luxurious pleasure they talked over the late spectacle of blood. Eumolpus removed his helmet and wiped his brows. His close-curled hair and short beard, his noble Roman features and bright dark eye attracted the general admiration. He was fresh, unwounded, unfatigued. The editor paused and proclaimed aloud that, as Niger's wound disabled him from again entering the arena, Leiden was to be the successor to the slaughtered Nepimus and the new combatant of Eumolpus. Yet Leiden, added he, if thou wouldst decline the combat with one so brave and tried, thou mayst have full liberty to do so. Eumolpus is not the antagonist that was originally decreed for thee. Thou knowest best how far thou canst cope with him. If thou failest, thy doom is honorable death. If thou conquerest, out of my own purse I will double the stipulated prize. The people shouted applause. Leiden stood in the lists. He gazed around. High above he beheld the pale face, the straining eyes of his father. He turned away irresolute for a moment. No, the conquest of the Cestus was not sufficient. He had not yet won the prize of victory. His father was still a slave. Noble ideale, he replied in a firm and deep tone, I shrink not from this combat. For the honor of Pompey, I demand that one trained by its long-celebrated Lanista shall do battle with this Roman. The people shouted louder than before. Four to one against Leiden, said Clodius to Lepidus. I would not take twenty to one. Why, Eumolpus is a very Achilles, and this poor fellow is but a Tyro. Eumolpus gazed hard at the face of Leiden. He smiled, yet the smile was followed by a slight and scarce audible sigh, a touch of compassionate emotion, 
which custom conquered the moment the heart acknowledged it. And now both, clad in complete armor, the sword drawn, the visor closed, the two last combatants of the arena, ere man at least was matched with beast, stood opposed to each other. It was just at this time that a letter was delivered to the praetor by one of the attendants of the arena. He removed the cincture, glanced over it for a moment. His countenance betrayed surprise and embarrassment. He re-read the letter, and then muttering, Tush, it is impossible. The man must be drunk even in the morning to dream of such follies. Threw it carelessly aside, and gravely settled himself once more in the attitude of attention to the sports. The interest of the public was wound up very high. Eumolpus had at first won their favor, but the gallantry of Leiden, and his well-timed allusion to the honor of the Pompeian Lanista, had afterwards given the latter the preference in their eyes. "'Hola, old fellow,' said Medan's neighbor to him, "'your son is hardly matched.' but never fear, the editor will not permit him to be slain. No, nor the people neither. He has behaved too bravely for that. Ha, that was a home thrust, well averted by Pollux. At him again, Leiden. They stopped to breathe. What art thou muttering, old boy? Prayers, answered Medan, with a more calm and hopeful mien than he had yet maintained. Prayers, trifles, the time for gods to carry a man away in a cloud is gone now. Ha, Jupiter, what a blow! Thy side, thy side, take care of thy side, Leiden. There was a compulsive tremor throughout the assembly. A fierce blow from Eumolpus, full on the crest, had brought Leiden to his knee. Have it! He has it! cried a shrill female voice. He has it! It was the voice of the girl who had so anxiously anticipated the sacrifice of some criminal to the beasts. "'Be silent, child,' said the wife of Panza haughtily. "'Non have it. He is not wounded.' "'I wish he were, if only to spite old surly Medan,' muttered the girl. Meanwhile Leiden, who had hitherto defended himself with great skill and valor, began to give way before the vigorous assaults of the practiced Roman. His arm grew tired, his eye dizzy, he breathed hard and painfully. The combatants paused again for breath. "'Young man,' said Eumolpus, in a low voice, "'desist. I will wound thee slightly, then lower thy arms. Thou hast propitiated the editor and the mob. Thou wilt be honorably saved.' and my father still enslaved, groaned Leiden to himself. No, death or his freedom. At that thought, and seeing that his strength not being equal to the endurance of the Roman, everything depended on a sudden and desperate effort, he threw himself fiercely on Eumolpus. The Roman warily retreated. Leiden thrust again. Eumolpus drew himself aside. The sword grazed his cuirass. Leiden's breast was exposed. The Roman plunged his sword through the joints of the armor, not meaning, however, to inflict a deep wound. Leiden, weak and exhausted, fell forward, fell right on the point. It passed through and through, even to the back. Eumolpus drew forth his blade. Leiden still made an effort to regain his balance. His sword left his grasp. He struck mechanically at the gladiator with his naked hand and fell prostrate on the arena. 
with one accord editor and assembly made the signal of mercy the officers of the arena approached they took off the helmet of the vanquished he still breathed his eyes rolled fiercely on his foe the savageness he had acquired in his calling glared from his gaze and lowered upon the brow darkened already with the shades of death then with a convulsive groan with a half start he lifted his eyes above they rested not on the face of the editor nor on the pitying brows of his relenting judges he saw them not they were as if the vast space was desolate and bare one pale agonizing face alone was all he recognized one cry of a broken heart was all that amidst the murmurs and the shouts of the populace reached his ear the ferocity vanished from his brow a soft a tender expression of sanctifying but despairing love played over his features played waned darkened his face suddenly became locked and rigid resuming its former fierceness he fell upon the earth look to him said the ideale he has done his duty the officers dragged him off to the spoliarium a true type of glory and of its fate murmured arbaces to himself and his eye glancing round the amphitheatre betrayed so much of disdain and scorn that whoever encountered it felt his breath suddenly arrested and his emotions frozen into one sensation of abasement and of awe again rich perfumes were wafted around the theatre the attendants sprinkled fresh sand over the arena bring forth the lion and glaucus the athenian said the editor and a deep and breathless hush of overwrought interest and intense yet strange to say not unpleasing terror lay like a mighty and awful dream over the assembly End of Book 5, Chapter 2